Welcome to the Leap Form Podcast, episode number nine, Dr. Andrew Fry. Doc Fry's professor in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Kansas University. We first met because he did the first validation study um, of the Leap Form system. So this is going way back. Doc Fry was in town visiting his alma mater from his bachelor's, Nebraska Wesleyan. And so we were able to have a chat at Crescent Moon Coffee. Um, covered things ranging from the current state of research in exercise science, uh, what he's going to be doing on his sabbatical with his wife, which is pretty interesting, and then had some fun talking a little bit about basically being super fans for our respective sons and their collegiate sports careers. So without further ado, Dr. Andy Fry. Games February 1, so they're having their last two scrimmages Friday and Sunday, and uh, he just heard the the batting order. He's going to be number two. And I said, oh, "You you like that?" Because I, I his bat's been doing well. He went back to his original his stance and his old approach, and and he's got a different mindset. But it, and um, and it's like it's yeah. It took a little bit, and then it's like he's done pretty well this this fall. And um, so anyway, but he's number two, and I said, "You you like number two? I thought he might be there." But um, uh, he says, actually, yeah, he goes, they do their batting order a little differently here. And he says they really like to put their good hitters. And his, one of his roommates is in the four hole. He says two and four. They, they like a leadoff guy that, you know, but the guy's not a speed burner. But he's a good, solid player. And then um, they like, and they put one of their better guys in the five hole. I, I don't know. There's just a little bit different. Interesting. And so, uh, so he's in the two hole, which which bodes well. But anyway, he'd been contacted here by a professional team in Europe, in Sweden. Really. And um, so he was talking with the coach because they would like to know soon because they'll fly him over and they'll and now you don't make much money, but it's in their Swedish first division pro. So you got food and housing and maybe pick up some money and so forth. But uh, they are allowed to bring in, I think, two import players a year. And um, so he was talking about it. Sound, it's, in so many ways, it's cool. But he's like, I I don't want to commit this early. You know, season hasn't even been here. Sure, and, sure. You know, and it's kind of like, it's a one side of me. If he said, yeah, I'm all for this, I would say, go for it. And then you don't have to worry about anything. And I've heard players that, said I probably won't get drafted but then that also means do you have a shot at independent ball or right and there's all different levels of indie ball and um and international play we set up an account there's a an, a company that helps hook you up with the international teams so um so anyway last night I talked to him he says yeah I think I'm gonna pass I just don't want to commit this so I said all right let's move forward I mean yeah. Well, if they're truly interested, maybe that interest will remain. Yeah. After the season, anyway. Yeah, and the and you know, and then internationally, you have Southern Hemisphere. They play in the winter, so Australia is a big baseball area. And um, and about ten years ago, Major League Baseball helped helped to organize the Australian Baseball League. So they've had all these state pro, pro, semi-pro, whatever you want to call it, leagues for quite a while, but they. They started a league in Japan and Korea and the U.S. and maybe China and so forth. They send, okay, let's send someone down there for mm-hmm. the winter. And it's a it's pretty good level of play. And, um, and now 
you got to be pretty good to make that one because that's, I don't know. I don't know if they say it's like double A or something, but but it's a mix because you have Australians there that sure. You know, I think you have some really top guys, and then I think you get guys. I mean, everyone's good, but so anyway. But he's excited, and uh, so they start. And I'm gonna I'm making three trips to North Carolina this this so semester. What what year in school is he now? He's senior. senior. Okay, I assume since we were talking about. What will happen afterwards? That, that was yeah. the case, but I'm so this will be an interesting year for him. And he's on he's on schedule to graduate in four. It's like okay, he's better than his old man was. And what were you? Well, I went one. I was four and a half. I went one semester to Shadron State up in yeah. Nebraska, and uh, that was a false start. And part of it was uh, I changed my major, but also. Um, I had had knee surgery right before I went up there, and I was trying to come back a little too soon, so I set out the spring. So, and for, then I ended so for up, folks who don't know, come back from like um, what were you doing? Like, oh, give us I, that sports background from back in the day. Yeah, that was a knee knee cartilage. I had a torn cartilage, and back then they didn't scope it; they opened it, and it was done right here, right here in town, and uh, and so it's a slower recovery. In fact, I'll probably have to have it replaced. Oh, is that right? Uh, in fact, I'm sure there's no cartilage left because they took it all out back then. They took it out, and uh, so I mean, I lifted and I wrestled and I done everything on that. And now, if you were to see my knee, it is when we get up, I'll show you. It's way bigger, and uh, so I have to kind of baby it. Gotcha. And yeah. will you? When that happens, will you sort of enjoy the process of it? Like, remember when Hootie got <coughs> her knee worked on and she just was constantly pulling up photos? Yeah, I remember that. She did, I mean, she did awesome with that recovery. You know, uh, I've had both my hips replaced also. Oh, I didn't know that. And um, that was pretty smooth. And that's been seven, eight years. Uh, I had them done, I think, eight months apart. And that really was not bad. And, you know, my, my mother-in-law would lament that, wow, how come you're coming back so quick? Well, I'm also 30 years younger than you were when you, when you had yours right. done. And so there, that's a huge factor. And so I know Andrea pretty good shape. You know, maybe, maybe not by her standards, but by, by, by most, she was good shape. So that's huge. And, uh, you know, the downside, having it done when you're younger is, um, you know, they, they like to put it off as long as possible because there is a life expectancy with these artificial joints. So. Sure. And I think going in and replacing sometimes can be tricky. Who knows? Well, there's sort of a life expectancy with all joints, really. <laughs> it's true. But this, uh, yeah, I, I know the knee is, uh, I'm not looking forward to that because um, I was able to, like with my hip, um, after I forget how many weeks, uh, I could go in and lecture. I just make sure there was a, uh, uh, director's chair or something sitting sure. up high that I could sit in. I don't think I ended up using a lot, but, uh, um, you know, so it, it really wasn't that bad, but, uh, we'll see that's in the future. But, uh, what got us going on on that? But anyway, so I'm excited for Jared. Because uh, that'll be 
well, it's just fun to see him play. He likes his teammates, and and uh, he's majoring in psychology. And so they're they're revving up for the season right now, then. Oh yeah, right. yeah. They, uh, you know, I think in, I don't, I'm not sure what the NCAA rules are, but in other years, Division One hasn't started till like middle of February, and you know, so if you're one of the Southern schools, you you would start around then, but but you can start earlier. In fact. There's another team in this conference that's starting January 31st because it's the Friday. And so uh, his game isn't until Saturday, and they go down to South Carolina. But a lot of teams go down to North Carolina because, well, that's pretty – you know, he they practiced in 27 degrees yesterday. And he says, yeah, I'm, I bundle up, and but, you know – Just I'm don't from, get jammed. That was yeah, always my thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If it's inside, I may just open up and not throw the hands. I may just let that one go by when it's 27 degrees. Well, you know, I love, you know, partly because he's catcher, so he gets in the inside story on a lot of stuff, every single pitch he's right in the middle of. And, and uh, so it's just fascinating hearing him talk about the different pitchers, and who's not afraid to come inside, and whose who's, uh, breaking balls are really moving, who can hit their spots, who can't, you know. But, uh, um, you know, and last year they had a guy like this, and I guess they got one this year that, not afraid to move the guy off the plate a little because uh you know i wasn't a pitcher but apparently that's a that's a a skill to a strategy you know oh, no, you're not trying to hit him but we're yeah. we're gonna move him back speaking well, as a former catcher absolutely that's, right. that's exactly absolutely. right so is jared sort of the prototypical like captain on the field that many catchers are you know, I think so. He's not a over the top, like, you know, because there's some guys that are swag and there. Sure. And, and um, he can be cerebral and still yeah, get it and, done. Uh, and I think so. He's, he said he really gets along. I said I was asking him last night who he likes to catch. He says, you know, I really like to catch pretty much everyone. And you know, Sonny was saying the various pitcher strengths and and some of the things. He, but he says I just have to be aware of this and some. You know, one guy can really bring it. And uh, uh, now some of this, I don't know if you want out there. But um, but one guy can, can bring it. He struggles a little bit with hitting the spots. But, boy, when he's on, it's pretty. And, uh, and one of the, you know, but then every team's got guys like that. Well, I always thought of it as uh, each pitcher was a different problem to be solved. Yeah. Like, you know, someone arranged the chessboard differently a, each time. picture for him is uh, – as we go, you just asked me, who is it? <laughs> Some moron from Elite Form. <laughs> so how does uh, does your, how would I put this, call it your work life, creep into your fandom in terms of watching Jared? Like, do you feel like you see the game differently from yeah. many parents? It's because you've got the depth of knowledge. You know, that's a great question because, you know, I didn't grow up as a baseball player. And, yeah, you know, I enjoyed baseball. You know, I played recreational softball, but that doesn't mean I knew what I was doing. And uh, um, and so then there, there was a couple, couple steps. One was at some point I did what a lot of fathers do. I, I became a youth coach. And the good news there was – and so it was for, it was for my son's team. And um, – and then I had three other fathers and I got together. And the good news was all of them had pretty good baseball experience. And we got along well. 
and I handled the um, conditioning and just other, you know, helped run practices. And sometimes a lot of it's just organizing, you know, because there's a lot of disorganized, especially at the youth level. But even at all levels, there's a, a, uh, there's a certain thing to be said about someone who can organize a good practice. And uh, um, so I got into that and just by, by being around it and being around um, my, my friends who were coaching with me, yeah, I learned a lot from them, and some of them had played in college and had pro tryouts, and you know, I mean, so there was some, there was some uh, good knowledge there. Well, doing that for seven, eight years, that you learn a lot that sure. way. And then, um, of course, with our athletic performance lab, it's like well, let's start looking at some some of this. You know, you start paying more attention to the baseball research. Uh, I have a friend who always saying, "How come you're not doing more stuff with baseball and pitchers and stuff?" And it's like. Well, I'm not the person to probably do that because it hasn't been a focus of mine and so forth. But there's so many other areas, as popular as that sport is, there's so many areas, like a lot of sports, that can be looked at. So we've done projects with uh, uh, with catching and throwdowns, transfer throwdowns, pop times, and what contributes to it. In fact, we've got a, a paper in, in uh, about ready be submitted now that uh, I'll tell you about that's kind of interesting you know with catching um, I always go to the NSCA's sport uh, special interest group um, on baseball Um, just because there's a lot better baseball minds in the room but you just kind of get to hear what are the issues and talk a little shop with them Um, and of course now with new technology coming out um, you know the ability to evaluate swings and uh you know, one of the issues is just because the technology is there, is it is it actually providing useful information? Right. So I know a few years ago I did a talk where they were, where I was mentioning said um, the question in the world of sports science is is technology uh, directing the field or is or are the sports directing the technology? And sometimes, yeah, I mean it it depends. Sure. But uh, just because you can measure it, it's like. Okay, so is this useful information, or or what do you what are you going to do with it? Is it actionable? And maybe it just takes a while to figure out what what it is. And is it any better than um, a good coach's eye? You know, being able to watch right. and give feedback. And um, yeah, and that's a good question because um, you could argue both sides of that debate, I think. But uh, but regardless, um, yeah, his involvement has gotten me interested in, in baseball stuff. And we're going to be doing something this this spring with some colleagues in, in Mexico. And we're going to try to look at some some batting stuff. They have some connections with uh, um, some professional teams down there. So this is all kind of morphed because my son decided that he really liked baseball. And, uh, and yeah, it probably wouldn't be anything like that if uh, if there wasn't that interest. So in our lab, and you've seen our lab, we've got a full batting cage. We have a full pitching lane. We have a pitching machine. We have, uh, you know, bow nets to hit into and radar guns and, you know, the accelerometers that attach to the bats and um, high-speed cameras and so forth. Um, We're not like places um, like down in Birmingham where they're doing really high-end video analysis um, and, and evaluating you know, the pitchers, the torque and the rotator right. cuff muscles and so forth. It's like, that's awesome stuff. So we're not doing that. On the other hand, there's so many other things that we could easily be looking at 
that we haven't. There's just not enough hours in the day. Sure. Too many questions to be answered. Yeah. Well, yeah. and so we don't give people the wrong impression. You have a well-rounded lab. It's not like it's a baseball-centric setup. Yeah, it is an eclectic combo. But the fun thing is we do what uh, is fun, what we like to do. So uh, our budget is uh, zero. And, um, you know, for a lot of that stuff, uh, we're not out there getting grants and stuff. We're doing things on topics that interest us that are relevant to a coach or an athlete. And um, and so we get to go in a number of different directions. So it's a blessing and a curse. If we had a tighter focus, that would mean our, our, our lab would be a little different. But, you know, I, I couldn't make up a lab scenario much better than what we have because uh, we get to do stuff I like. And even if it's a sport that I don't know much about, I currently have a, a, a doctoral student, uh, Dmitry Chavarkova, uh, who's from Serbia, has played basketball for years, played at George, uh, James Madison. Well, he's my basketball expert. What do I know? I'm, a re- I'm an old wrestler. I don't know basketball. Probably the world's worst basketball player. Well, the fact you're at KU... That's Maybe true. we shouldn't have you say you don't know basketball. <laughs> That's true. They, uh, <laughs> by osmosis, uh, everyone at KU is a basketball expert, I guess. So, I mean, there's that. And we've had good connections with the basketball program over there, uh, primarily through Andrea Hooty and her staff. But the coaches have been interested. But, you know, right now we're doing a number of things with basketball, um, you know, looking at uh, the mechanics of free throws uh, and making or missing or um, why are you such a great free throw shooter? You shoot uh, 80% and I shoot uh, 40%. You know, are there some uh, some things that we can pick up as far as where we can quantify it? So we, we've got a project with that going on. We're doing, this is fun, dunk, dunk research. So we just had, uh, see, is that paper out? Um, no, it's in review, but we have some work that is looking at what are the forces during a dunk. You know, basketball is a funny sport because there's still, to this day, plenty of coaches that say, you know, we're not making football players um, or shot putters, so we don't really lift heavy. We do functional training. And the term functional drives me nuts because, well, uh, you know, what is functional? But um, one message I get is, well, we don't want to load them very heavy, but uh, – what we have found is, um, uh, you know, what you do in the weight room is obviously important. So let's take a look at what are some of the forces that go on out on the basketball court. Well, let's do a dunking study. So we, we had a force plate, one of our large force plates, and we brought a bunch of guys that obviously had to be able to dunk. Right. Right hand, left hand, one leg, two legs, two hands, whatever. And so uh, we're looking at the forces. And... Uh, um, and then we'll be able to compare that with other activities that uh, that go on typically in a conditioning program. Hmm. Maybe we should. Uh, yeah. Now, what we're going to find shouldn't surprise anybody. But the the data is not out there. And, uh, and well, that's always one of the the challenges with a certain amount of research is that. Well, you made a comment about kind of the coach's eye and its value. Like sometimes data confirms. Yes. What a coach who's, you know, been yeah. in the game for a while yeah. effectively already knows. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, I think that's where the value of, well, the technology, the measurement methods, um, 
that's so helpful because you can quantify confidently a variable or a value that you are interested in. But that alone is meaningless until someone knows what it means and puts it into context. So it's not just a black box, oh, the number's good, the light's green, excellent, uh, good. Well, the intelligent coach knows what that data means and what it means for that individual and, uh, and puts it into the bigger picture. So it's just one piece of the puzzle, one tool can be very valuable and very helpful. And at the end of the day, like you say, maybe it just reinforces what the coach suspected, but now I can quantify it. I can track progress of the individual or I can compare or whatever, whatever it is that's the, the purpose of the testing. But, um, yeah, so the technology, you have to watch out for the black box thing. Well, I flipped a switch and the number came up and, look, this is good. Okay, <clears throat> it's not the only thing. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting field. So in terms of uh, the work you do at the lab and the uh, areas that you're focused on, like what drives that? Is it student-driven? You know, it's a combination of both. And this is something that uh, I've consciously made a decision to do for, for years, I guess from the start of my career. There are some people in the world of research that, you know, when they have a student come, they, they will say, here's what your project is, because this is what I do, and you're the next one to walk in the door, and so here's your project. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is a very focused research agenda, and we're moving in this direction, and if you're jumping on board with me, this is where we're going. Occasionally, I've given some direction or strongly encourage people, but quite often uh, I view my role as a mentor as, as being someone that can this student find their direction. And one is uh, before they ever come to work with me or, or to be advised or mentored by me, um, we obviously meet so that it's like, where, what are your interests? Are you a good fit to begin with? Because if not, then uh, let me make some suggestions or, you know, now it's not that you're not a good candidate or academically capable or anything but it's like you want to be somewhere that's going to get you where you want to go and you're interested in it because i what i don't want is someone working in my lab that's just doing it because well i just got to do this to get my degree and yeah whatever um and and that's not that hard to avoid i think so as a result we try to find something that interests them and it may take a little bit you know i tell my students that the process of looking at your thesis or dissertation starts from day one. Now, we don't nail it down for a while, and the academic calendar and guidelines don't let you declare or, or propose a thesis or dissertation topic for a while, but we can start the process of finding what it is that you're interested in, and you can start doing the reading and the background work right now, and, um, and it'll take a while for it to evolve. But, um, but then you've got people that have, they're invested in it, they're interested in it, and the net result is they come out, they, I think they're, they, they really know the area. And that's not, obviously not the only approach, but that's one that I like. And, uh, and I'm flexible enough that as long as it's, uh, and here lately, as long as it's sports-oriented, is it applicable to, to sport performance? or some high-end performance. It doesn't have to be sport, but we focused on sport. So, 
And how often does that actually sort of transition over to working with the student athletes at Kansas University? You know, yeah. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it's a natural tie-in, and boom, it, it happens. The key thing, there may be some questions that are relevant to the student athletes, but it's not practical or advisable to use the student athletes for some of our research questions because sure. it would interfere. And so then uh, someone can criticize us, and rightly so, that, well, you have a question that's relevant for high-level athletes, but you're not using high-level athletes. Well, it's true. So um, that is something sometimes we have to work around, and, and that's a limitation to some of our work. But the coaches and the athletes have to be on board, have to be. Otherwise, there's nothing. So in answer to your question, there are a number of things we've done with athletics that's not part of a dissertation or a thesis or, or anything, but it's just something when Andrea Hootie was there, it would be like, you know, as often as not, the ideas come from them. It's like, well, let's think about this. Yeah, we can measure this. And uh, plus they do a lot of in-house stuff too. And uh, if, if it's something we can help with, great. If it's something that a student can use for a dissertation or thesis, great. Um, but, you know, not everything you do with, with athletes is stuff that is necessarily going to be published also. So that's, that's another thing to think about. And um, it's absolutely, in my opinion, appropriate and right for a coach or an athletic department to say, this is data that um, we don't want to share. That's okay. That's part of what a sport performance lab is. We're still able to help you, and we can look at this. And maybe that leads to some variation of that project we do with another population or, um, you know what I mean? So we, we're not, it's not like a dead end for us. And sometimes we'll collect data that's not even you know, relevant to, to publish or, or, or either the quality or the sample size or the design of the study. I was sample size. And, yeah. and so that's an issue with, with sport. You just don't have, uh, you know, the end size. Uh, a few years ago, great talk by Bill Sands, who worked with the U.S. Olympic Committee for years. And I, I, I've lost track of where he is now, but um, I enjoy reading his stuff. But when he talked, he said, look, I'm I work with Olympic-level athletes, and these are among the best in the world, period. He says, good heavens, even when we have something we want to write up, we get crushed for not having a sample size that's big enough or not having a control group. And it's like, ah, but in, in that world, you, you don't get to necessarily have a control group. And, you know, anyone who's taken a, a research design class, you know, the chapter that talks about study design um, well, you've got everything from the tightest controlled study that NIH would love and, you know, pharmaceuticals would love and have to have to quasi-experimental designs that, yeah, there are limitations to it, but it's still, if it's interpreted appropriately, right. it's helpful. So some of it is finding what's the, what's the research outlet out there where that will, that has reviewers that understand that and, and also making sure that if, as you write it up, that it's interpreted appropriately. So that's uh, um, that, that is a challenge, and we've we've run into it too. We run into it uh, on a pretty regular basis. So um, that's um, that's kind of a challenge. 
And then on the other hand, you've got, uh, and I'll get into area that some people might disagree with me on, but in the world of research, there are so many new research publications out there now. And a lot of them are um, for profit. And um, in my opinion, there's some places, from what I understand, you pay the page charges and you'll probably, you'll, it'll get in. And so then where's the quality control uh, on some of that stuff? Uh, so I don't know, you, you have to look carefully what's out there and, 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 and interpret it uh, appropriately. And I'm not saying that a lot of these journals aren't, aren't necessarily good and that the research isn't good, but uh, yeah, I don't know, you have, uh, I've been keeping track. In fact, I'll pull my phone out right now. I've been keeping track of how many, day, how many offers I get on email every single day to submit um, the article to their new journal, and um, by the way, here's our page charges, but over the last two weeks, it's like 40 or something like every day, wow. it's uh, three, four, five, six, seven. So since we're on audio, uh, Doc Fry has showed me that he literally has notes in his phone where he's just got a little tick list going, and it's literally <laughs> for the last two weeks, uh, I don't know, 50% of the time there's three plus reach outs a day with requests. So for folks who haven't been a part of sort of that process before, prior to seeing these four profit publications, what was the process like in terms of doing research and then submitting a paper? Because I think well, a lot of people understand research gets done, but they don't really yeah. know what goes into the back end of that. Well, you know, the the research world is, you know, like a lot of worlds is, is going through transitions and, and, evolutionary processes and so forth and and it differs in different disciplines my my wife is in sports psychology and this is um much less of an issue there um one of the issues when we get ready to publish something is okay where do we want to go where's a good journal where's uh, that has a good audience and we look at things like impact factor or, or people actually going there and citing it and so forth and um Unlike what some people think, an Im a journal's impact factor is um, is not necessarily a measure of quality. It was never designed to be a measure of quality. It was simply a measure of our people going dies. to to, uh, to the to these journals and citing them and so forth. And there's other measures that uh, are also used that that are helpful for uh, quantitative evaluation. Um, but it also depends what what field you're in. If I'm doing research in cancer research, well, the number of citations my research gets is way different than if I'm doing it on um, some more obscure field. And it doesn't mean the journal's better or worse. It's just you're in a topic area that's getting a lot of attention. And, I mean, this is good information to know. But um, uh, years ago, you would submit your, uh, your paper and it would be reviewed, and the, the journals made their money by subscriptions to libraries and, in some cases, to individuals. Well, cost of journal subscriptions is astronomical, and if you look at the budget of any university library, it's, it, it'll blow your mind how much they spend. And then it's only gone up, 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 and a lot of libraries are uh, rebelling, saying, we're, we're going to oh, drop a publisher's journals. And uh, I know that's happened at, at our university, and so then you end up with a, all of a sudden, you don't have access to a number uh, of journals. 
and I don't know when this happened. This has been the case for a long time for some journals, but they, they have uh, either page charges that you have to pay for after it's accepted, or some of them have submission fees, or some just have a publication fee that gets, uh, um, you, you have to pay if you want your journal out there, if you want your uh, article out there in their journal. And it can range from just a few hundred dollars to um, $5,000. I was just reading the other day, there's some that high. And, um, well, where's that money come from? Well, it comes from your grant. Well, what if I don't have a grant? Or what if I'm in a field or in a lot of the stuff we do in, in our lab, you know, we don't have a, a budget for it. Sometimes we can, you know, ask for funding for it. Our university actually has some funding, but in, uh, I'll be honest, uh, my university may not want me to say this, but it looks pretty cumbersome trying to get it. And it's a limited amount of money for a large university. And so, um, and some places are very proactive on it. And so they want their people out there and getting the name out there and, and they do it well and, and they uh, support it. But there's a fee. So in my lab, I've got two lists of journals that we consider. It's the ones that don't charge you. And, and then others that are, that's like, okay, if we go here, there's a fee. How are we going to do this? And, um, and so that uh, is, a, is a big issue because uh, that becomes, they are now for profit. They're a business. So this little list I showed you, even today, you know, this is still early morning. Uh, I've already had four requests this morning. And I'm not saying this because I'm anything special. I'm sure there's, there's a ton. Of, everyone's getting this. These are massive. Well, they're probably emails. like, yeah, they're effectively sales cold calls, it seems yes. like. And, um, you know, from all over the world, from all kinds of, you know, I get asked to submit my research to dental journals, to gastroenterology journals, to dermatology. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's not even real. But, uh, but they... Uh, but it, it raises an interesting issue. It also raises an interesting issue. Where is the sports science research going? I've read some um, what would be called sport or exercise science research that's in some of the most obscure places that are um, complete. I think the mission of the journal is completely inappropriate, but it gets in there, and, that, and now it's cited, and it's out there. And I'm guessing who, who reviews it, you know, because it's, I doubt that it's the, the, the sports scientist or the right. exercise scientist. It's somebody else, and that that's that's a little disconcerting. Doesn't mean that what was written was necessarily bad, but uh, um, in some cases, there's there's enough cases where I'm like, wow, this it, is a little it bit changes scary. the barrier to entry though in terms of mm -hmm. getting published. Exactly, exactly. So you know. Not that we're any different than uh, a lot of places, but uh, uh, it's it's an issue that we're very much aware of. And back to the world of sports science, um, we're finding that there there are actually some some what I think are some really good journals that uh, sort of obscure. I had I'm like wow I hadn't heard of this um, somewhere else in the world. And nowadays with uh, the way these journals are indexed, they're you know, at one time I thought no one will ever read this because no one even knows this journal's out there. Well, now they're becoming more and more visible. And there are some places that um, I look down through their table of contents. And even if it's not topics I'm directly interested in, it's like, yes, this is the journal where some of our stuff needs to go. And you look down at the editorial board. Okay, who is it who handles this? Oh, 
okay, these are people that actually work in the profession. Okay, that's another good sign. And uh, so, if uh, I'm, so say I'm a younger uh, aspiring coach, uh, and I'm trying to lean into the science a little bit, and you know, you and I are chatting over a coffee, and I ask you like, so how do I cut through all of this? Like, what would you recommend? Like to that person, because obviously, there's as you just described, there's a lot of things out there. I have a limited amount of time as a coach. Like, do you have sort of a tick list where you know, you'd say, "Hey, start here," or how do you how yeah. do you think about that? You know, that's a great question. You know, there's a couple things. Even you know, my job, forty percent of my job description on my contract is to do scholarship, do research. So, I mean. That's I should have all the time in the world to, to do it. And I, I struggle with it because how do you keep up with it? And there are some additional challenges. Social media can be a blessing and it can be a curse. And there's a lot of stuff that gets published out there that I first find out about it on social media. But it's also like sometimes it is, uh, you know, it may be it may be good stuff. It may be like, wow, this is. I don't know. You see all, all, all levels. Now I'm speaking purely in my own uh, opinion. Um, so social media can be, uh, I, I do learn a lot through social media. Even if it's not published, I see, okay, what, what are things that are being thrown out there? You know, there's a lot of people that have their, their blogs or their websites, or they send out, you know, emails or in some way, shape or form, they, they promote, you know, a thought, and it's like that. That's excellent, but it's also um, none of that goes through a review, or it's you know, anyone, everyone has a right to their opinion, and they do, but you have to interpret it appropriately. So uh, one of the, uh, you know, one of the things you have to work around is 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 the social media. Now, what was your original question? Just how you would help someone sort through all of that if I'm an aspiring coach like yeah. is there a tick list or so a couple things that I do is uh, I subscribe to a little thing that comes in in my email every day that is just kind of like a rundown of what's going on in the sport world what's going on in sports science and it's very generic and and but you know I flip down through it takes me about 30 seconds to flip through and I see oh here's something maybe I'll mark it and come back and look at it later or maybe I'll download something I find that helpful and that uh, um, it's just a little service. I, I pay 30 bucks or 50 bucks a year, but to me it's helpful. kind of keeps me grounded in the sports world, both as a researcher but also, okay, what are, what are some issues that are, that are out in the, the sports world in, in general? Um, there, are, um, there are other kind of resources too where you can, you know, being at a university – but it's not just university. You can you can routinely search for certain topics and try to stay on top of what the literature is out there, and, and that's critical because there are there's a lot of stuff coming out, and um, and there's parts of the world that are promoting more, uh, doing more and more sport related, and or exercise related stuff. How do you uh, kind of mentor someone coming through? Is just being aware of. Helping them have an awareness that, yeah, research can come in a lot of different ways, shapes, and forms. And, and how, um, you know, just being able to make their own value judgments as far as the quality of the work and interpreting it. Just because it's in black and white doesn't mean it's correct. Uh, I'm in the process of uh, 
working on a, on a review that will take a while to, to come out. But what's driven it is there's stuff that's out there that's published that is 100% incorrect. I mean, and it, this is not an opinion thing. This is where... Someone said 2 plus 2 equals 5 yeah. type of thing. And it's also clear that they didn't go back and see what they were looking at. It's like, okay, this is muddying up a topic out there. And it's not to call someone out. It's instead to say, hold it, let's back up a second. Let's look at this topic. And um, let's look closely at the history of it and so forth. And and uh, I think it's important because it's out there and people say, oh, yeah. And it's like, no, let's let's make that's part of what the research world is and the publication world is, where you have good discourse on relevant topics and you have the ability to, uh, you know, to help educate people, but it needs to be correct. And and uh, I don't want to come off sounding arrogant saying correct, but it's it's just like, wow, I'm seeing these repeated statements and they cite each other, and uh, and it's like, okay, that's not right. It's not it's, right. It's difficult. It becomes a difficult conversation, I think, when you have to initially debate the facts mm -hmm. to then get to a point where you can actually start debating anything that follows on from those facts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, like, I don't know that it's arrogant if someone says 2 plus 2 equals 5 and you say, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's... a. Uh, um, in every profession, I'm sure it's this way, but it, it can be, it can be so pervasive. And then you start going down a direction that it's like, okay, um, someone may be well-meaning, but but it's, but one, let's be clear, this is this is not correct. And sometimes it's written by people that don't work in that area too. Like for example, I'm a member of American Baseball Coaches Association. I love getting their publications. I read their stuff. I find it fascinating. I, I just thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I would not write an article on baseball strategy or it's kind of like, well, I'm a, I'm a dad who coached youth baseball. I love watching it. Uh, I do have some insight <clears throat> on some things because we, we study some things in the lab, but I'm not the guy that anyone wants to read about my opinion on what to do with two outs and discount at the plate and the wind's blown out and you got a lefty against a slider thrower, whatever. Um, and so knowing, okay, I know what I know and I know what I don't know and I'll, and I'll stay in my area. And, um, and I think sometimes, though, people uh, are able to be very vocal on topics that, uh, that it's like, okay, I think you're getting on the fringe of what, what you know. And that, that's a that's a challenge. Everyone's that way. Um, there are some topics that okay, I do know, and I'm very comfortable talking with anyone on some of this stuff. There's there's a reason you have the position that you have, but there's part a body of, of work behind you. But part of that not too, to write your homework card, but yeah, but you know, part of it too is recognizing when I don't, and you know, that's when, uh, like at KU, that's what it's nice. I, I can walk across over and talk to the coaches. Okay, what what am I doing here? For example, we're doing uh, we're trying to do some work, and it's a it's a slow go, partly because we're we're kind of feeling out a new area. We're working quite a bit with uh, Kansas Diving, and the Dryland Diving Facility is right next door to our athletic performance lab. So I I, I see them 
any day I walk around the corner. And the coach is uh, Gabe Downey. He's doing an excellent job there, but he's also very open-minded. I mean, he, he should be a biomechanist. And, um, but what do I know about diving? I mean, I love going and watching them compete, but uh, I don't have the eye for it. But I go and I talk to coach. I say, okay, so seems to me, and he'll say, you know, he may agree, he may correct me. Well, that's what has to be done because I'm, um, you know, I've heard some people say uh, the role of a sports scientist is to educate the coaches. Well, yes, but I'll tell you what, in my opinion, there's more education that goes the other way. The coach is educating me because they've got the practical experience, they know the sport, but it, it's definitely a two-way street, and it needs to be that way. In the world of sports science, you need to be open-minded both ways. Everyone likes to say, well, the coach has to be willing to work with you. Well, the sports scientist has to be able to work with the coach, and you don't get to call all the shots. You know, Can we collect data? Yes, no. Is it a question you're interested in? Yes, no. Gee, could we publish or present this? Yes, no. I mean, it may be, may be no to everything. Well, that's part of the territory. But uh, um, that, uh, I, I think I kind of uh, went off on, on a tangent here, but, it, but I think that's it's... How, uh, that's how these things work. So that's, <laughs> that's more than fine. More than fine. But yeah, being able to communicate with the coaches. Uh, I mean, yeah, you can't come in and say, here's, here's what we're doing. And they may say, yeah, no, you're not. And, and even if it's a great idea, if they're not interested in it, and it's like, okay, well, then I need to move on or I need to nurture a relationship. Just like working with a colleague or a partner or, um, you know, there's give and take, and it works both ways. And as a sports scientist, your goal is to give the coach and the athlete something that's helpful and that, that enhances their training, their performance, their understanding, whatever. That's, you know, that's what the mission is. The goal is not how many pubs can I get? The goal is not how many presentations. The goal is not, gee, can I, how much grant money can I get? And see, all that flies in the face of academia. And so they're not mutually exclusive. We, we have had no problem getting enough data we can publish. We can't stay on top of what we were talking earlier this morning. Um, so that's not really a problem. But it's not really sports science if the coach and the athlete can't see the value in it. And it's fun when, when you have that relationship with a coach or a team or a group, and it's like, okay, and they, they have a trust in you. And, I mean, it's, it's both ways. And it's, it's not automatic. You can't just hire me and come in. It's like even if I have great ideas, maybe I'm a jerk. I don't, sure. I don't want to work with them. Just sure. like how do you have a good coaching staff? We got to be able to work together. You know how to how do you have a staff at your business or your company or whatever? Um, you have to be able to work well together, and uh, that's easier said than done sometimes. And there's a lot of egos in our world, my, myself included. And uh, so, so that's one thing I've tried to do with our uh, the Jayhawk Athletic Performance Lab is this is not uh, this is not a thing about me. You know, my students are working. They work harder in there than I do. The teams and coaches and athletes that uh, people we interact with, you know, it's really about about them. And um, and I think that's important to, to keep in mind because there's not, nothing magical about the individual. 
It's uh, what's the direction and the mission, and, and what are you doing? And, uh, you know, if you go on our, uh, you know, we this is where this old guy is, is learned about social media with Twitter and, and Facebook and, and Instagram. And so we, we, we have a presence on all of those platforms. And uh, once or twice a week, we put something up. But it's not, we're not pumping data out there. We're just, uh, hey, here's something we're up to, or hey, look what, look who came through. Or uh, last year when you were on campus, you oh, yeah. slapped your picture that. up yeah. there, and it's like, hey, Skip came through. And I rambled at your students for <laughs> 50 minutes. Or but, um, you know, it's just, uh, um, just, hey, here's some things we're doing or we're trying. Or uh, In fact, right now, what we have posted uh, is uh, – is one of the, there was a, a guy that was training in our diving facility that uh, was uh, training f- to make the, the national, international teams for the U.S. And before uh, uh, an old back injury raised up, it was fun watching him go in because this guy could dive. Clark Thomas used to dive in Missouri. And so we've got, I've got some slow motion video of him working on his springboard approach. Oh my gosh, that is just so cool. Well, we don't have any data out there yet. We're you know, he was willing to let us put accelerometers on him, and we're trying to see, okay, what kind of a signal we're getting. Can we make sense out of it? We can get a signal. What the heck's that mean? You know, and is this something that, uh, you know, so we tried to put out there just, um, yeah, this is not a social media is not for our lab. is not intended to be the source of information. Go to the research journals. Go to the coaching journals and places like that where someone else has read it, proofed it, and reviewed it, critiqued it, shot holes through it, whatever. And um, so that's a, that's a very deliberate approach that we, we make. And I think, that, I think that's correct, at least for us. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's the thing with social media is you almost have to define how you're going to use it before you even exactly. jump in. And then people end up having a expectation of that kind of content from your I don't even know what you call it your profile I guess or whatever yeah whatever label yeah. is appropriate given the, the social media platform yeah yeah so we've talked a little bit about what you're doing at KU but you're actually on sabbatical yeah yeah so I'm excited because uh, this spring semester I'm not teaching not doing any committee work we do have projects going on in the lab. I'll be in touch with uh, with my students, uh, but they they don't need me looking over their shoulder. I'll be checking in with them. I do have a, one student who'll be defending his dissertation here, actually in a month or two. And uh, um, but this really opens up my time to do trips like this up to Lincoln. To do uh, um, I'm going to be going to uh, to North Carolina quite a bit to watch and observe baseball senior year baseball yeah and um i'm also um the main project is to go down to the uh um universidad autonoma de baja california the autonomous university of baja california which is in ensenada about two hours south of san diego and i've been down to their campus several times uh my wife who's in sports psychology we both were down there and did a lecture series uh last fall but um, there's two two colleagues down there in particular, uh, Ivan Renteria, who is um, on the faculty there in their exercise science program, 
and we are working, whether this will materialize, we're working to uh, interact with perhaps some of the professional teams down there to do some baseball research. But as we were talking about creating a good uh, collaboration with sport teams is is sometimes a challenge. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. It's just it should be a challenge, I think. We're still working on trying to iron out the details. But one way or another, we're going to be doing some projects. I'll be down there at some point. We haven't set up my travel schedule. So that's nice. But um, uh, being able to write, I'm just already, as soon as I got my grades in last fall, I was reading, writing. I've got a list of uh, things, of new things that I want to work on. I also want to clear my desk of some papers that are in the process. But uh, there's some good reviews on several really good topics out there that I, uh, I would like to address because I think there's, there's... Can you share one of those? If not, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of them is... Um, one deals with... Uh, you know, we're talking about sports science. Uh, in the past, my research agenda has actually been two-pronged. The other one which is not unrelated, but deals with molecular and cellular adaptations in, in the muscle in response to exercise and primarily resistance training. So for years, uh, both at my last university and, and my current one, we, we do muscle biopsies. We can do blood work. We can analyze the, the proteins in the muscle. We can analyze the fiber types. We can analyze the, uh, the different states of these proteins. We can look at receptors for hormones in the muscle. We can look at, uh, in fact, we're trying to nail down the last part of the analysis. We're looking at sodium potassium pumps in the cell membrane. Well, that would affect the excitability of the fiber. And we have some evidence that gets affected with, by stressful training. And it's like, wow, this is cool stuff. But uh, long story short, over the years, we've done a lot of work with looking at fiber types. And what are the different fiber types? And what's become apparent to me is there's confusion when looking at the literature because there are many different ways to type fibers. And what may appear to be the same method is not. It's either different methods from different labs and the different, the way fibers are classified, it's not identical. Now, in some cases it's similar, but in some cases it's quite different. And sometimes people are looking at different kinds of data and saying that's this fiber typing. It's actually not fiber typing given the way the data was analyzed. And I know this because we, we is do that, Is that back to our debate about what are the facts? Yes. Or that comment about yes. what are the facts? So people have misinterpreted some of the um, muscle adaptation literature. Now, not completely, but there are some key points where it's like that data actually does not support what you're saying. So it's like uh, looking at, okay, what are the different methods for fiber typing? Uh, and you got to go way back in the history because there's... There, well, yeah, people I mean, don't like way. to do that sometimes. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's stuff, um, is it animal research or is it human research? Because the fiber types are different in animals. And, you know, there's categories of fiber types that aren't in people that are in animals. And there's different different names that people use. And there's even, even when you are, you have two different methods that are trying to look at the same thing, but they do it differently. And there's data out there that says, well, these results are not identical. So what are the implications when you just lump everything in? And so, I mean, that's one that, uh, on one hand, um, 
means you got to get in. Let's get into the history. Let's get into the many, many different ways of doing this. Let's get into some of the issues and let's get into, okay, what are some of the interpretations that are being made? And so on one hand, you know, that'll, that'll take a, a little while, but uh, that's, that's one topic that I, I find very fascinating. It's kind of like, um, and inevitably the people that are actually doing that research are not the ones that are making some of these statements. You know, they're, they're not, they don't do cellular and molecular work. But uh, so uh, it's like, okay, let's, let's straighten this out a little bit. Now, that being said, it, that whatever I write is not going to solve any problem, but it's like at least I can put my two cents out there. And, and uh, Well, yeah, there's a, there's a downstream effect to even something as simple as having a differing methodology yes. where now you've got 10 people that have read the abstract mm-hmm. and they're making assumptions and then another domino falls. So just going back and simply we, cleaning some of that up has a value. You know, it's a related thing and this fits right into, uh, to elite form, what elite form does and, and is able to measure. You get into the literature and you get people will say, okay, what is the purpose of my training? I want to measure power or I want to measure velocity, but let's just say power. Okay, so what load should I use? You know, how heavy should I go? So what are you aiming for? Are you aiming for maximum power? So what's maximum power? Well, it depends who you read. Some people say, well, that's at no, no external load, uh, just body weight. You will have maximum power. Okay. Uh, some people say, well, it's at 30%. Okay. Some people say it's at 60 or 70% or maybe higher. Okay. People go say, well, go back to A.V. Hill's classic work in the, you know, in the 50s, maybe even 40s, but certainly the 50s. Uh, yeah, 40s and 50s, where he did some of the seminal work at looking at contractile characteristics of, of muscle and his graph. And it shows up in exercise stuff all the time. It's like, oh, yeah, maximum power is at 30%. Well, let's put this into context. A.V. Hill is looking at isolated animal muscle that's been pulled out. And, I mean, let's look at how he got his data. Excellent information, a must read for anyone who wants to go back and look at the history. But let's look at every one of these papers that is correct, that's giving you these different numbers. Well, I'm right, you're wrong. Well, one thing that... Um, the, uh, the Zatsiorsky and Kramer book that uh, Human Kinetics puts out is coming out with a third edition. And, and I was, uh, I'm so excited because I was asked to contribute as the third author. And so there's a chapter in there on velocity in the weight room. And so we, we talk about, because um, power is influenced by velocity. So we get into that and we start breaking down how come we're seeing different results. And so we we just went in the lab and we said, let's measure it different ways. And lo and behold, here's, here's why we're seeing such differences. It's not that someone's wrong or that their study was wrong. It's just you got to go back and look and see where did those numbers come from. And, and that's why every time we have tested the KU basketball teams on their uh, making a power load curve, we see a very classic peak power at uh, certain loads, which is different than a lot of the research, but it's, we're also measuring it differently. 
And so uh, that's where lots of times people don't, they don't look at the bigger picture. You know, it, they just want one answer. What's the load? Well, it's this percent. Well, it depends. Depends on the exercise. It depends on the individual. It depends on the range of motion. It depends on, you know, now people look at the propulsive phase or the deceleration phase, or do you not have it? You know, are, are, you, are you becoming airborne? Are you, um, you know, what is the external load, et cetera? Are you using a force plate or are you using a position transducer? Are you including the body mass? which you are if you are on a force plate, or are you just tracking the bar data, which is what Elite Form does in, in many, most weight rooms, that's what they, they do. They track the implement, and, uh, and they'll give you different different numbers. And uh, uh, and that's some stuff that we have under review and that we're, and we've, we've looked at a lot in the, in the past, but that's right up, right up Elite Form's alley, because it's, yeah, and you guys come in the door, this is what we have here. And these are the measures. And you're not telling us what's a, a right number or a wrong number. You're saying, here's the tool. But but then when you start comparing those numbers with other data or stuff that comes out of a lab, as soon as we do the same exercise with a lead form, but then we put a force plate underneath. In fact, that was a mistake we made on one of our data collections with you guys. Well, that's we how had, we met. Yeah, was during we, that effort, and we had a force plate underneath, and then yeah. we realized, wow, our numbers are, this can't be this wrong. Well, we hadn't thought it through carefully. Obviously, we had body mass included, which okay, and that's a real value, and maybe for your testing, you need to have body mass in there, but that also meant we're measuring two different ways. We're comparing apples and oranges. So then, subsequently, we said, okay, we need to measure with a. Uh, we need to do our validation a little bit differently. So our, our numbers weren't incorrect. We were just measuring the wrong thing. We are doing it the incorrect way. So, uh, you know, that's a that's another good topic because uh, that's something you hear out there all the time. Well, it's the, yeah, that's always interesting and why. Well, it's one of the reasons we will often state that we're a tool, right? And then we want to do a good job of describing for you and anyone else the kind of tool that we are. And we try to have a good understanding of other tools because it's okay. Like, I think Gymaware is a super solid product as an example. There are just differences, right? So what are they? We'll try to just speak intelligently to that. Same with an accelerometer. There's some different problems you have to solve with the different technologies that you use. Mm -hmm. So let's just be open about what those are. You can choose what the best solution for your weight room is. Yeah. Right? And we'll just go from there. Um, but yeah, I mean that's. Well, it's interesting, and it's uh, yeah, it gets uh, you know, the technology moves so fast in some cases that at some point you got to kind of stop and say, okay, let's back up, see exactly what we've got here, and then of course, like any anything, is it validated? Is it uh, how does it agree with the gold standard? Is it uh, is it accurate enough? Am I trying to you know, if I'm a NASA engineer and I'm trying to dock my right. rocket with the with the space station, I better be spot on. Or I'm, I've got to get out of orbit. I better make sure my angle of departure is is correct, and I, there's not much wiggle room. If I'm in the weight room and I'm tracking my um, high school sophomore, this is pretty close, right? And as we know, it's very repeatable. You know, the uh, we've taken devices, 
So we haven't done this with a, a, a lead form. Could we take a lead form and mount it upside down? I suppose we could, because what I was saying, we've taken like um, tether-based devices and just to measure, well, what's the reliability of a tether-based device? Well, how do you do that? Because you can't have someone do a bunch of benches or a bunch of squats because every bench is different. You know, there's biological variability. Well, I want something that's exactly the same. So anyways, we, we suspended it upside down, this tether-based thing, and we attached a medicine ball and we dropped, dropped it. it. So gravity, 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 gravity stayed, did a pretty good job, stayed the same. And, and the repeatability of the mechanical system was as you would expect. The, the problem was sometimes I didn't drop it carefully and the medicine ball would spin a little. It caused some friction in there. And didn't cause friction, but because of the uh, slight rotation, you know, you had the tether oh, yeah, attached it was the to it. Off the hand, but yeah. And so if you didn't release it carefully, you imparted just a little spin and you'd get just a fraction difference in the velocity. I mean, it's that sensitive. Uh, so even if there is some error, you know, at some point, you as the coach or the researcher or whatever you say, is this acceptable error? Is it consistent? You know, or are you just all over the place? And, you know, those are decisions that have to be made. And when I'm working with a weight training class or whatever, this is, this is way more, you know, any device we've looked at is way more precise than what we, uh, than, than what we probably need. So, yeah, one of the, one of the interesting conversations, like when people are trying to reach for a gold standard, just sort of becomes, okay, then what are you actually going to use to do that? So like Chris Bach at Nebraska, when you take that tour, shout out to Chris, they have a Qualysis system. Yeah. So you're talking about a thousand frames plus, I think they can actually change the settings. Yeah. Like a second worth 30. So yeah, it ought to be. <laughs> that seems like a more than sensible way to uh, to determine whether or not some well, of these other devices are valid. But you can't put a Qualysis system on every weight rack. Yeah, you can't. So and, there's and, that that balance. And even if act. you could, even if you could, yeah, go ahead and stick one on every station. Uh, so one, I want your budget. But two, how quick are you going to turn that data around? Because there's the bottleneck. Well, yeah. So uh, you can be as precise as you want, but. Uh, Coach, I'll get you your data in a few weeks or whatever. Or I'm going to, I mean, it's just um, versus, you know, there's the the, the point of, of turnaround time is huge. And this comes up in, in uh, one of the other chapters in, in the Zasiorski book is monitoring athletes in the weight room. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about it, but an issue that there's a short section on turnaround time. Can I get the data back in a timely fashion? And it depends on what the data is. But if I need to know what happened in this morning's workout, I need it now. I'm back right. in the office. It's before lunch. I need it now. That's a good point. Versus, um, well, I'll get it to you in a few few weeks. Now, sometimes we've done projects where it took a long time to get back. Years ago, we did a, a year's worth of salivary biomarkers with the men's and women's basketball teams across there. 30 weeks of their preseason, in-season, and then at the end of the season. Well, that took a long time for us to turn it around. We were, we were doing all the analyses in our lab, and, and we told them, this is not, you're not getting a report every week. Could have been, we could have sent it to a clinical lab. We didn't have the budget for it, but we also wanted to do our quality control where we did, did samples in duplicate. We had 
you know, the intra and inter assay variances and stuff, and you don't get that unless you do it yourself. Or you pay double to have samples analyzed or twice. Getting, so, getting, okay, yeah. the budget, let's, let's not do that. Uh, yeah, so some stuff, it just, it'll take a while. But, but other stuff you need right now. And then some stuff you need right now in the training session. So if I come in the weight room, and, uh, and I know this was done, uh, Allie Kirshner, who's uh, out at Stanford now, but she was at KU, and she used uh, your system a lot. She would, uh, and I, I can't, I'm not sure on the specifics, but I think she, uh, during their warm-ups, I think maybe they did uh, jumps in the, uh, in the elite form with a PVC pipe, and they were getting velocities, and it was kind of used as a, it was just part of the warm-up. Right. But it's like, okay, are you really sharp today? Because uh, typically you're at this, you're at these velocities, or I don't know if they looked at velocity or power, but it's just, well, the feedback is right now because your workout is going to be dictated. It's a, a auto regulation. We've done some stuff in our, our lab with that, but whatever system you have, whether it's just filling out a survey, you look at it right now, or whether it's um, like what she's doing, something in our lab, we did something where um, it was a pre-workout jump, something that's quick, rapid, and we got the data. You look pretty sharp today. Let's, let's be aggressive versus kind of beat up. Well, it makes sense. You had two games over the weekend, you traveled all night, you had a short sleep, and today, okay, it shows up, and well, you need the feedback quick. And so that's another thing that people forget about. Yeah, it's nice to have that expensive system, whether it's Qualsys or Vicon or some of those. Uh, the researcher says, I want one of those in my lab. For me, it's like, I don't, uh, you know, I don't have enough hours to sit there. Right. And Someone else can figure that out. I want the system that will do a valid, correct, valid, reliable measure and will get it to, to us quickly. I suppose the buzzword might be actionable. Yes. Yeah. Making it a bit more yeah. actionable. So, I mean, obviously it has to be a system that's been, been validated for that. But, um, but that's a huge thing, and every coach is on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to wait. I wanna, well, they I have limited now. time. Exactly. Anyway. Exactly. In so many ways. Mm -hmm. that it's more yeah. often an issue than not. Yeah. So, see, we could take an elite form, and we could put it upside down, and then drop a bar. Now, that'd be pretty rapid. That might be too fast. <laughs> just well, the, you wouldn't have to put the unit upside down. So if we're just kind of hashing this out out loud, right, you wouldn't have to actually. There's nothing that would, we, I mean, we just see the open space, right? So can you, can you, the fact that it's moving toward the floor instead of away from the floor is a non-issue. So you got the data that. in there. You just don't, uh, um, you, for your data, you just don't use it. Right. I mean, it's, it's no different than, so if we're tracking the eccentric, right, on a squat, mm -hmm. the bar is actually moving toward the floor. So, so what's the top end velocity that, you know, because I was going to say when you start dropping something, then you're talking some pretty high speeds, you know, you're talking 9.8 meters per second per right. second with whatever velocity. What's the high end that any of these devices can, can measure? I'm not sure. Well, I guess we find out. And I'm sure sampling rate's an issue. Well, not that we necessarily need to, to do that. Yeah, there's, well, there's definitely going to be a, a point where you can tease out for any technology 
where it begins to be less and less valid. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's definitely going to be a tipping point. Actually, as we're sitting here, and I should know it, so honest admission, I actually don't know what ours <laughs> is because um, I'm always worried about the reverse. Like, uh-huh. are we accurately measuring X? And no loaded bar is going to get close to the point where we're going to hit that tipping point. And then there are other things people will ask for where it's a non-starter. Like, yeah. If we, if we go back to chatting about Jared in a swing in baseball, mm-hmm. I know we're not going to be able to measure that. Yeah. So at some point, I'm sure it's going to be worth looking into what is that tipping point. It's just never been a hot button item for us to actually look at that, that you know, particular metric. Going back to baseball, see, this is area. We're going to come up with a whole bunch of projects here. We actually have and we're We're writing this up now. We have data. You know, in baseball, one of the one of the favorite tests that scouts and at showcases we like to use is, is exit velocity or batted ball velocity. So you put the ball on a tee, and the player hits it, and he hits it into a net. Or on the other side of the net is a radar gun, and they measure the speed of the ball coming off the bat. So yeah, on one hand, it's a fairly simplistic measure, but if you've got good batting technique and you've got the power and so forth, there is, and, and coaches and scouts have known this for a long time, the higher velocities are possible. You know, it's associated with higher batting capabilities. Obviously, you know, size is an issue and so forth too. So we actually have data, and we, we collected this a number of years ago with, with uh, our university players, but we've done it with, with other groups as well, where we actually see there's actually a relationship, a significant correlation between uh, lower body strength, as in squat one RM, and batted ball velocity. When they came into our lab, and they we we measured it, and we we did high speed video as well. But really, we're looking at the the radar gun. And it's like oh, so stronger person. Um, and then we also have so there's a strength issue. Well, okay, and then we also had them where they were swinging on two force plates, one for the lead foot, one for the rear foot. Interesting. And we see that there is a significant correlation between the force that the lead foot, so you get your load, but then as you're coming forward, you, you transition, transfer. Your, yeah. you transfer the weight forward. The force at that lead foot, whether you're, so it's a, your left foot if you're righty and your right foot if you're lefty, is correlated with batted ball velocity. So if you glance at that first, you don't, really know about baseball and and i was guilty of this i'm like oh so you really have to stomp that foot down hard to facilitate that transition well no you don't because that that changes your swing mechanics but what it does show is an effective transition uh which is why you have a load and the load doesn't have to be much you know it's not like you're doing a sammy sosa high knee kick kind of thing you can do that but some people are very compact and and sure and yet they still get that transition. And that ground reaction force moves up the kinetic chain. And if everything, if technique is good, it transitions out to the bat and then they make contact. Anyway, there's correlations between batted ball velocity and those ground forces. There's correlation between what goes on in the weight room. So, hmm, maybe I should make people stronger. But there's also correlation between body size, which is why your cleanup batters often one of your bigger guys. Okay, well, that makes sense. Doesn't mean a small guy can't have power. Everyone will point to uh, Jose Altuve. 
well, he can hit a ton of homers. Well, yeah, it's not the only factor. But in general, you know, you look at MLB players, there's not very many small guys. And, and coaches, they like to look for size if, they, if the guy has every, everything else. But um, we ought to go take that one step further. What about the power? And with a leaf form, we could look at power load curves or some of these other characteristics. I wonder if they're, I wonder if that's even more. Because we were talking earlier today about a uh, relationship between uh, squat power and, right. uh, and the ability to play professionally. To, to get picked in the NBA draft or didn't, go other Am I places. remembering correctly? Didn't Glenn came? Yes. Shout out to Glenn. Do it, the study like that? That was, uh, it was part of the, we, we actually had a, a large data set. And Glenn's now at Rutgers. When he was at KU, we, we looked at that a lot. And, and we've since added numbers to it. Okay. And, uh, um, but looking at, you know, why should I, why should I lift uh, heavy or worry about putting a bar on my back? Not that this is the whole thing, obviously. Otherwise, you'd recruit your basketball team from the powerlifting team or something. Right. But um, but among among basketball players, lower body power and lower body strength is important. And it's not just the bigs. You know, people say, well, they were probably all your power forwards and your centers. No, we, we statistically looked and saw it's just across the board. And even when we adjust, you know, we adjust for positions and stuff. Um, and what's interesting on that data, I kind of switch back to basketball. Even the guys that are one and dones. So think about it. They came in their freshman year, and in some cases they had modest to little strength training background. Unbelievable athletes. Everybody wants them. NBA's looking at them, so forth. But they come to a university, and they get introduced to the weight room. So you know they're nowhere near their weight room potential. But they test out, and we test their speed squats once they know how to do it and so forth. And they still rise to the top among the most powerful, even though they, they barely, they're barely in the door. So one is they, they have some innate abilities, which are starting to be refined. Then you have some guys who spent four or five years in the program, and now they're leaving. Okay. So for some people, it's, it's something that has evolved. For some people, it's one of i'm sure numerous characteristics but lower body strength and power is there and so you know it's it's probably one of one of a number of variables that that make them attractive to to the the pro scouts and i thought that's interesting because i you would think that would throw it off no so they're they're fairly new so just imagine where they'd be if they were there for four years and you know when we look at our our data set, we look at people that are extremely powerful and strong. And as a, as a Kansas fan, um, you know, any Kansas fan, you know, I'm not going to mention names. They'd be able to tell you just because it's like, yeah, they were, they also showed that they put in. Or you could just say a basketball fan. A basketball fan. You could just yeah. put it that way. And, uh, and it it's like, point, that's helpful. Yeah. It also points to, you mentioned when we first started recording this, you know, the idea of a collaborative process with the coaching staff from a sports science mm-hmm. kind of standpoint, standpoint and foundation. And uh, I always find it interesting. So we'll talk about a particular variable and someone will say, well, X player never lifted or X player doesn't do that. But if we're talking about an array, right, of things we can look at, 
and you're not saying well, your squat's the first thing you should look at. The point is it's a variable that you can influence. Yes. One of many factors. And the fact that this, this is a pet peeve, so bear with me, but the fact that someone can bring up an outlier as being different doesn't dismiss the fact that 95% of the time X, X variable matters. And so if you can get into that kind of a collaboration and conversation, downstream benefits become much greater. Because we can talk yeah. about hitting all we want, but the first thing that you and I might actually talk about with any population is how's their eyesight. Because <laughs> if you can't see it, no one really okay, cares. What else you got? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I find, uh, I find it interesting uh, transitioning back to baseball. You know, and I've been to a lot of showcase events. And what's one of the first things that is tested at a showcase event? Uh, the 60, 60 yards. And um, why 60 yards? Well, it's first to third or it's home to second or, you know, because uh, that's the distance, even though it's not or straight Or 60 away. feet, six inches if I'm charging the mound. Because <laughs> you, you came inside on That's a different test. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you have to do that. No, I was going to say carrying your bat. I'm not going down there. But uh, um, Hot topic lately. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. So if I'm a scout or a coach and I'm at one of these events and we've done the 60 and I've, I haven't seen this kid put a glove on, I haven't seen him throwing a ball, I haven't seen him even, I don't even know if he knows which end of the bat to pick up, but he's on my radar screen. Well, I understand that because speed is a nice trait to have and i assume everyone here is pretty good but what if i went to uh, my track team and i just said look i'll pay your way once you go to this baseball showcase sure you ever play baseball no what is it but he'll get the attention of of everyone and like i said understandably except there's so many other variables you know we talk about well just because you're strong doesn't mean you're a great basketball player no but if you're a good basketball player and you have that strength that's important but, you know, like speed, there's plenty of players that are good baseball players. They may not have that blinding speed or they may play a position that's not as critical. I'm a first baseman. I'm a catcher. Now, rightly so, you could argue and say, yeah, but those guys got to be fast, too. At some point, you, you do need some speed. But how are you measuring speed? In a 60? Or, you know, I would argue that for a catcher, let's do a five <laughs> or something like that where – can you, uh, how quickly can you, that ball that's in the dirt and you've got to go chase, how quick can you get to it? Can you guard your, your turf there? You know, so that's a different measure rather than top end speed. That's, a, that's an agility. That's a, uh, that's first step speed. Okay, so now let's open up another door. Everyone talks about first step speed. Okay, so who measures it? Um, everyone talks about it. I want to train it. We got drills for it. Okay, how are you doing? Are you improving your first step speed? Uh, I think so. Um, and that's one thing that's on our radar screen in our lab. Can you actually measure that? Because that might be more important. If you and I are on the soccer field, you may be faster than me on a, whatever the sprint test is they do. But first three steps, I'm ahead of you, which means I get to the ball. You know, because uh, I'm not running right. that far for it. Well, and you get into issues of, of how are you having to move because we're talking about, you know, oftentimes on a soccer pitch, you're dealing with quick lateral movements. Yes. Where I'm shuffling over as opposed to a classic. I'm not coming out of the blocks, for example. Yes. Right. 
Um, so all of those things you can kind of, it's always a fun conversation. You just start to drill down, right? But then you end up with the time constraint of, I can't, you know, someone will argue and I'm sure they're right. Like I can't have 15 different ways to measure yes. position groups, which then multiplies to 45 different, you know, whatever, however that ends up working well, it would be really slick, and we're we're playing around with some devices and some some outfits where, because um, with accelerometry, we think we can maybe do it. On paper, we sure can. <laughs> In reality, that's uh, easier said than done. But uh, is there something that could be real easy to do? And it's like, all right, let's just uh, measure it. And yep, here here's the number. It flashes up on the screen or on my phone or on my iPad or whatever. Okay, um, so technology's there. And maybe someone's done it. We've been trying to uh, work with a company that is moving that direction. We'll see. It, uh, it's evolving field. Fun. Absolutely fun. I mean, it, it does kind of get back to what kind of one of the things you said, and I think Chris Bach phrased it as, "What question are we trying to answer?" Yeah. I'm like, oh, absolutely. There are things when you have that good collaboration. Coach X may say it completely differently than you might in a lab, but now once we understand we're talking about the same thing, can yeah. we get measurement X? Yeah. Because I really feel like X tells us something that gives us a greater probability of success. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it, it's a fun area. It's a fun area to work in, and uh, that's a key thing, having fun. That helps. Speaking of fun, so... We do a thing on the podcast that we've started calling a Malort moment. A Lord moment? Malort. Malort. So Malort is this beverage. <laughs> it's a Swedish liqueur. Okay. And From... I'm wondering if we might just share a quick sip. Are yeah, you open we, to can, that? we can do that. So I, I don't have to be uh, uh, um, You're on sabbatical. Coherent. I don't have to be coherent the rest of the day. Um, but I will ask you this. I was wondering this earlier. So uh, we don't have glasses, which is unfortunate. Your wife is a sports psychologist. Yeah. We've covered a bit about what you do. So do you ever have any any interesting in-house debates kind of crossing over between your two fields? Oh, yeah. We have collaborations. We've published stuff together. Thanks for coming on. Salute. Isihia. What's that? That's Greek, I guess. If anyone knows Greek, uh, my friend Perry Kazaris in Montreal would be proud of me because he. That's interesting. What is this? If you read the back, it describes it as a unique Swedish botanical, I believe, for two-fisted drinkers. <laughs> I've told the story a few times. Basically, Johnny brought this to our attention, and it's become the, the unofficial beverage. So this of is... This is like your lunch? Breakfast or lunch. Just depends on the day. Depends how the day's going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what have, what have you and your wife done together? Like what are what are the interesting conversations? Well, there's a couple, couple things. Before I met her, we had tried to do some psychological assessments with some of our overtraining stuff. We haven't even talked about that, but uh, a big part of my research agenda over the years has been what happens when you do too much in the weight room? And it hasn't been just the weight room, but primarily. And I'm trying to understand how it affects performance and try to understand how uh, it affects the physiology. 
So along the way, we had done some questionnaires, which were not very well designed. And so we actually... Like a wellness questionnaire type of scenario or it something was, um, specific? It was a daily questionnaire that people would fill out so we could track every training session because okay. we did some very aggressive stuff. And we did it in the lab because, one, we, we didn't want to do it with our athletes. I mean, we shouldn't do it with our athletes. It, it was bad training because it was just right. so aggressive. Let's intentionally get everyone overtrained <laughs> yeah. so we can then measure. Gotcha. And uh, so we had a questionnaire and, and on subsequent projects she said we need to clean this up and there's there's some very standard methods of how you write the questions how they are scored you know um, we used a likert scale uh, arrangement having multiple items on various topics so that it's not just a single item thing so you can tell if someone is giving you a valid response so i mean you use questions that are inversely worded question one might be i'm really looking forward to today's workout Okay, and I put yes. Uh, later, there'll be a question on, uh, I'd really like to, if I could, I'd like to skip today's workout. Well, you're kind of asking the same thing. Right. But it should be, okay, I should be marking should be a, a disagree. In the and so you, you do it with at least three questions. And that's lots of times when you fill things out, it's like, didn't they ask me this before? Then you can go back and you can look at the internal validity. And we get people that just, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll just put down whatever. And the pattern is painfully obvious that this is not even a valid, the person didn't do a valid questionnaire, didn't answer correctly. So, I mean, which means we didn't administer the test well, because that's wasted time on everyone's part. So anyway, she helped us with that. Yeah. Well, it's annoying. You think, well, it's a subject. But then also, I didn't administer it correctly to relay the message and to actually hold people accountable actually look at look at the thing uh before throwing it in the file and that kind of thing so she's helped with that more recently we've done some stuff she does a lot of work with achievement goal theory which is where um it's a fascinating area came out of the educational world as a teacher what kind of a motivational climate do i create in the classroom as a teacher i have tremendous ability to dictate that and the motivational climate is not where I'm giving a halftime talk at the Super Bowl. It's am I creating a climate that people want to give their best effort and where you are, and achievement goal theory is uh, how are people evaluated? I want to see that you're giving me your best effort. I want to see that you're showing improvement versus how do I see achievement? Well, who's my best person? They're ranked one at the top of the leaderboard. Okay, what if I'm number 10? Does that mean I'm a schmuck? Or, you know, where, where's that put me? Or I used to be the leader. Then I think about this in youth sport. I'm on the youth team. Now I'm on the high school team. Oh, I'm, I barely made the JV team, and I'm sitting on the bench mostly, and I'm used to being the number one because all I've heard is uh, if you aren't the winner or the stud, you're nothing. Right. And it's interesting because some of this stuff, and I don't want to speak for her, but uh, American Psychological Association, she just wrote a, a chapter for one of their handbooks. And they have a, they actually have a book that comes out. Routledge just published a few weeks ago a book that she and her colleagues wrote on uh, optimizing the youth experience in sport. And it's based around this achievement goal theory. And so you can create the climate that enhances their enjoyment, their effort, 
their improvement. If I'm a coach, what more do I want? You know, is that somewhat analogous to um, the phrase growth mindset? Is something I've heard quite a bit. Is there you know, some crossover there? Or? I think there is, and and I'm I have to plead some ignorance on that, but I know I've heard that term, and so there's some related approaches. The the one thing that I hear among some coaches and what I would say pseudo coaches is, yeah, but this is the real world. This is all about winning. Why do you think we play the game? It's like, look, the winning and the trying to win is part of the game. That's always there. But how you get there is going to be important. And if, if you drive everyone away, you know, that's one of the, there's a lot, there's so much data on this achievement goal theory. It's unbelievable to say, yeah, but there's no data out there. Baloney, it, you get buried by how much research is out there. It's just people don't don't realize it, and it's not hard to do. And it applies not just to coaching setting; applies to the work site, it applies to me with my students, it applies to interacting with with other people and so on. So, at any rate, she's done a lot of work in that area. And the last few years, we've done looking at the psychophys, psychophysiology. So, they have some. Can you define that? So Just, it's kind of like the mind-body connection. You know, everyone talks about, well, if I really want my biceps to get bigger, I need to have my mind-body connection. I'm really thinking about my biceps, so they're a lot bigger now. Okay, there, you know, whatever, There, there's there's that approach, whether you buy into it or, or not. I mean, I'm. my guess is it's you're really – focusing on your workout and you're not just spacing out you're you have intention and okay. so on. but this is where um the psychological climate that is created and they actually have some teaching with uh, physical activity scenarios that they've developed over the years where they can create either the ego climate or the task climate and then we come in and we actually measure a couple things we can look at the salivary cortisol responses. And it's easy to do because you can do it with large numbers. You can do it with youth. You can do it, you can sample 30 people in a room that have been exposed to this environment um, or the other. And my going into it, I was like, okay, I, I doubt that we'll see very much because cortisol is not that reactive. The difference between groups was astounding. And I was like, holy really? cow, we couldn't have made up results better. It's like you are creating in both settings, you're teaching someone to do, in, in this case, they use a juggling model. So it's a physical activity that most people don't know. So if you don't know how to juggle, you can be in the study and we'll teach okay. you, but we'll put you in two different climates. Uh, you know, one group and so it, it takes a lot of coordination, but let's measure the, the cortisol response. It, it's hugely different. Plus they're taking surveys and everything and it's a miserable experience for one group it's juggling for crying out loud what's the big whoop but you've created this climate where you sorry skip you're just not really very good and it's like that's the message you get and that's the message a lot of youth athletes get well you know you're not that good i don't know how many times i hear a parent saying yeah my kid's not that good you know who who cares? Is he out there having fun? Or is he doing his best? Uh, does he enjoy it? Does he want to? Great. Go for it. And a, a lot of coaches have to deal with that. I'm a high school coach. I, I don't get to recruit my athletes. I got to deal with what I got. Maybe right. I'm loaded this year. Maybe. But let's let's take you, see where we can get you. 
I mean, that's the, the real world. So we've also looked at, interestingly, <laughs> this is pretty funky. We have taken and we've done this work with Dr. Candace Hogue, who's at Penn State Harrisburg. Oh, they have a unit. Oh, okay. Yeah, so for whatever that's worth. Oh, yeah. I should tell her because um, because she studied with in my wife's lab. And we took uh, oral swabs and we looked for something called salivary tumor necrosis factor receptor 2s, which is a mouthful. But essentially, one of the responses to stress is tumor necrosis factor, which is looked in a lot of disease states and so forth. But you can... But the receptor that we pick up in the saliva is actually acts as a binding protein to protect you against part of the stress response. And that goes up. And uh, that just came out this last year. Uh, I think it's out now. But it's like, so wait a minute. The only difference was this motivational climate that I created. So if anyone thinks that you don't have a big impact on how you interact with your athletes, and this is not reps and sets and intervals and rest intervals so forth. It has nothing to do with that. This is just this cognitive, this perception of, and it's the climate that, that you create and that it's easy to create one way or the other. And uh, it has a huge impact a physiologically. Right? Yes. And it's like, I, I, I find that, uh, I, that's fascinating stuff. So we're, we're kind of merging two areas we're not the first there's labs that do psychophys stuff but it's it's tying the two in it's not you know i'm always studying what's the effect of certain sets or reps or training programs or warm-ups or whatever we haven't even done anything we're creating this environment and if you watched one of her projects in action that climate gets created pretty quickly it's not because i'm calling you names i'm not screaming at you i'm not cussing at you it's it's body language. It's just the terminology used. It's it's pretty fascinating. So that's that's an area that is underappreciated. But there there's so much data out there related to the climate that you can create, and, and it makes me. It's affected me in my teaching because I'm just aware of some things. I'm like routinely there are things in the classroom where I decide how to handle based on what I've learned from that. And if I'm coaching, absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's one of the best places to implement this climate where let's foster enjoyment, effort, and improvement. And um, your team may come in last. Your sprinter may be the slowest one out there, but they're having fun. They're going to stick with it. They're giving you everything they can, and they're making improvement. Well, that's what I'm looking for as a coach. And what's really cool, now you get the kid who really has some physical skills, you take them right along with it, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they can deal with adversity because everybody loses. Everybody has tough times. They can deal with adversity better. And so it, uh, it, you could do a, a day-long podcast on this stuff. It's fascinating. Well, clearly, we should just have you both on the podcast at once yeah. and, and branch into that. I, I always find it interesting. Like the brain is the most complicated thing that we have found so far in the universe. So I often feel like what we do at Elite Forum is sort of like the Stone Age tool mm -hmm. in many ways compared to where, to paint with a broad brushstroke, cognitive science will go. Because mm -hmm. um, we already know the brain is incredibly elastic. 
right? We're just getting started. So another podcast for another time, maybe, but. You know, and I, you know, we're talking about sport here, but uh, my daughter's in theater in the performing arts, and uh, and this applies to that too. You know, it's there's not many places where it doesn't apply, but uh, you know, we talk about this. She's got to perform. And, uh, Thanks to everyone for listening. Really appreciate Doc Fry coming on. Please remember to do all those cliche things that one does for a podcast, like, subscribe, etc. If you have feedback, we don't really care, but you can send it to podcast at elitefarm.com and we'll take it under advisement. Thanks again.